Welcome to Writers Forum, a weekly presentation of WRBH. I'm Sherry Alexander, and we want to welcome our guest today, Calvin Trillin, author of most recently of Jackson 64 and other dispatches from 50 years of reporting on race in America. Welcome to Writers Forum, Mr. Trillin. Thank you. Now, you wear so many hats. You're a journalist, a humorist, a poet, a novelist. Um, your prizes uh, include, to me, my favorite, your Thurber Prize in American Humor. How do you think of yourself? Do you think of your, you're a writer or just? I, I think I think of myself as someone who never quite got his act together and decided <laughs> what he was actually going to do. Well, yeah. after 30 books and quite a career traveling all around the country mm-hmm. and the world, I think you've got your act together. Yeah. But um, You're from Kansas City, the Missouri side. That's right. Originally. And you famously went to Yale, and you've written a good bit about it. Yeah, my my father, who didn't go to college, had read a book called Stover at Yale when he was a boy. He didn't get to go to college, and so he decided I would go to Yale. And uh, I learned later that he had put away um, a sort of rebate that, a, that a, he was a grocer, in his first grocery store that uh, bread companies offered if you, um, one one specific bread company offered if uh, you displayed the bread in the front and paid your bills on time. And he put that money away for me to go to Yale. Uh, not to college, to Yale. <laughs> that specific right. one, that was the ticket to, you know, a second generation being um, a big success. Yeah, you know, I... I I was the first person in, in my family to graduate from college, um, and I think uh, he, I think he thought of it that way. I think he thought that he would make sure that I got an even start with, I think, the people he thought of as the sons of the industrialists and everything, and then after that it was up to me. Well, we'll talk a little more about that when we talk about one of the books that you wrote about it, but you were also in the Army. You worked for time. And you were in the Atlanta Bureau um, in Georgia and during the time of the integration of the university there, well, Athens. Yeah, uh, the, the Atlanta Bureau covered the South, so, uh, and it was a two-person bureau, and um, the bureau chief was married and had two or three or four kids and actually liked to stay home with his family, so I did most of the traveling. I couldn't understand why he didn't want to go get chased with, by people with clubs and, and <laughs> uh, stay home in Atlanta. But, um, and Atlanta was sort of chosen for the airport. Or the, uh, you, you go to have, heaven or hell and you change planes yeah, in Atlanta. Yeah, yeah, you might go to heaven. If you, you have to change <laughs> planes in Atlanta, that's right. And um, so I covered the, the trial of, and, and then the, the actual integration when the students finally arrived after being stalled for a year and a half. Well, and didn't that result in your first book, The uh, Education in Georgia, about yes. Charlene hunter Gold? Yes, that was the first piece I did for The New Yorker, and also that became the first book. Um, you also, you've been, you were with The New Yorker for what, since 1963? 63, however many years that is. Oh, my goodness. And you also worked for The Nation. Yeah, um... 
work, I think, is almost like saying the gray ladies that used to work for the hospital because there's not much pay involved there. Um, uh, I I was asked if I would do a column for the nation, and uh, I asked how much they would pay for each column, and the then editor, who I refer to as the wily and parsimonious Victor Navasky, said they've been paying something in the high two figures. And, <laughs> but didn't you eventually get them up to three? No, yeah, I, I turned it over to my high-powered literary agent, and I said, play hardball. And he <laughs> got them up to 100. So I still get 100. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, I mean, that was for a column, but but then I now get it for a verse. I write, I write a little verse every issue for the nation, and I... Um, I still get a hundred. I, I didn't think it was a lot, but then I found out that poetry, in those days, and I think still is paid by the line yeah. usually, and and the highest paying magazine then was the New Yorker, was paid ten dollars a line. So, I always say you can understand why there's not a big crowd in front of the poetry booth at the Career Day Fair, <laughs> and uh, I was getting a hundred dollars no matter what. So if I wrote a, like a two-line poem. It's pretty which, good. Well, which I used to, well, I would do if when you want to get that buzz you get for being the top dollar earner in your field, I would write a two-line poem, and that was $50 a line. as the highest paid poet in the country. <laughs> and you've called it doggerel. You've, you, sure, you, yeah. It's not... Uh, it's not... What Literary my, poetry. Not what my daughter's called grown-up poetry. <laughs> but it's great. It's so much fun to read. Um, I think you've written now about 30 books, maybe. I mean, Something some are like collections. Yeah. And some, of, some of them are, uh, a number of them are collections from uh, either uh, New Yorker pieces or um, so there are three or four books that are at least based on, on the poems uh, from the nation. Well, and several of them are, are one of your favorite topics, food. How did you get, was it because your dad was a grocer or you just love to write about food and eating? And Well, I found, um, I think that came out of, of traveling. Uh, for 15 years, I went to uh, usually a, a new place every three weeks for a story for the New Yorker. Uh, magazine writers used to say, how do you keep up the pace? And newspaper reporters would say, what else do you do? Uh, <laughs> and, I, um, uh, and I'd and i always um, been interested in the fact that when people, like I'm from Kansas City, when people from Kansas City saw each other in New York, uh, they didn't talk about the fancy restaurant in Kansas City. What a, the, the restaurant I used to call generically La Maison de la Casa House, continental <laughs> cuisine. Uh, they talked about hamburgers or, or barbecue. And um, most of the food writing then was done about what I guess you'd call fine dining. And um, I was not interested in that, partly because I'm, I'm not interested in eating it very much, but also it, it's, it would be the same. I mean, a La Maison de la Casa House and in Houston and, and one in in Columbus, Indiana, would not differ that much. Um, 
so I, I, I was interested. I, I found that it was a way of talking about people in places. Uh, I guess I was writing about vernacular food, food that was tied to the place. And um, I, I don't know anything about it, actually. I mean, I don't, I don't cook and I don't have any sort of expertise. I, I've never reviewed a restaurant. I, I couldn't tell you what the, the um, perfect beef wellington tastes like or what it should taste like or anything like that. Um, but I, uh, I found it was a way of writing lighter pieces. Um, I th- on the country, I think the first one I wrote was uh, about the crawfish festival in Brobridge, Louisiana. Yay! And, and, uh, and, and, um, so it was really a way of writing about Cajuns and, and, um, uh, who were particularly interested in eating. You revisited the topic, I remember, um, wrote something about hot sauce and how it might cure <laughs> diseases, and then you had to write a little afterward that maybe it doesn't cure every disease yeah, or whatever. I, I, think, uh, I think there was an LSU study that showed hot sauce was, was good for the something. Are you listening yeah. out there, folks? Yeah, eat, eat plenty of hot <laughs> it's sauce. It's good for you. It's not yeah. only do we love eat it, it, but it's breakfast. good for you. <laughs> um, you. You said once you wear two hats, the fedora with the press cl- card uh, on it and then the jester with the balls dangling on it. Right. I think of you primarily, I mean, I'm a I'm president of your fan club, right. I want you to know. Um, I think of you first because I'm such a New Yorker fan, the humor pieces. So let's talk a little bit about that. Um, you've had several collections, Too Soon to Tell and um, Quite Enough of Calvin Trillin. The one from Quite Enough that I still remember, maybe because I'm a journalist, you, you read about, it's a correction. I think the guy's name, right. I don't know how, Ralph Murtaugh, is that how you yeah, say it? Yeah, Murtaugh, yeah. I think. And you have a correction, and then the paper the next day runs the correction to the right, correction. Right. At the end of the thing, it's like a rondelet, you're back correcting originally what you corrected. Um, some of the others I, I really liked, Adventures in the Book Trade. This is from Too Soon to Tell, right. so it was about 1990, and how people um, get people. You did, you did it with Al Newharth, I guess his SOB book, where he got Gannett people to buy it, so it would get yes. on the bestseller list. Yes, and, and when they were at, uh, the actual... Uh, I can't remember uh, how it was done. I, th- I think it was before emails, but but the foundation, the tax-free foundation, asked Gannett editors around the country to go to certain bookstores and, and buy the book. And when they were caught, I think by the Washington Post, they said it was for journalism education. And, and I said, yeah, the lesson is cheat and if you're caught, lie. I mean, <laughs> That's that's the education they were teaching. Well, and other people did it. I mean, you aren't just saying um, Al Newharth. You you cite Newt Gingrich, um, and I loved it. You you wrote about Ivana Trump, and she had just gotten a big, I think, three million bucks to write some books, and and you you were forecasting, and you said she's going to write a fictional uh, woman named Marvella Gump, and I looked up when she really wrote the book. She right. called herself Katrinka Graham. <laughs> Look how close he was. Yes, to... yeah. <laughs> it, it sort of shows you you can't really joke. Uh, it's what I call the Harry Golden rule, 
well, which is that, that you can't, in attempts at humor, say something so bizarre that it might not come to pass before your piece gets <laughs> There's printed. There's several times yeah. when you do this. Well, Harry Golden, actually, the reason I call it the Harry, he used to run a paper in, in North Carolina. The Israelite? The Carolina Israelite. And he said at one point that people in his part of North Carolina didn't seem to mind standing up with black people, but they they didn't like sitting down with them. So his plan was to take integrate the schools by taking all of the chairs out. The vertical Negro plan. That's right. Yeah, the vertical that. plan for the integration of the schools, and uh, and I think w- within a few weeks there was a court order for a library to desegregate in some part of North Carolina, and they took the chairs out. So, <laughs> and it's true. I I. Uh, I wrote a piece once about a, a disease that I, or not a disease, a condition uh, that afflicts some gentlemen as they get older, uh, which is which I called um, DTS, the disappearing touch syndrome, which is where the backside sort of flattens out, and and I talked about some uh, perfectly respectable accountant retired in Boca Rapan, taking a tray of food to his table and walk right out of his pants. <laughs> and, and and then a, a few weeks later, I read in the Times that there actually, there's a, there's a specialty in plastic surgery of taking men's uh, love handles and replacing them on, on, their, on their backside so that that won't happen. I could talk about your humor pieces all day. I I, I just want to mention one more, um, the lip syncing. You wrote a column that um, there was so many ghost writers for celebrities. Right. <laughs> it's getting to the point where you don't even have to worry, just worry about the um, interviewer having read your book, but sometimes the author <laughs> might not yeah. have read the book. I actually got a phone call from a man who had a, book show in Chicago, and he said, does it bother you going on uh, in a book tour to get an interview and, and the person hasn't read the book? And I said, well, you know, you can't expect if you have five minutes on L.A. this morning, you can't expect the guy to read five books a week in addition to his other duties, and he's kind of well-briefed, and usually there's some sort of way of talking about the book that's not really that. And he said, well, my problem is authors who hadn't read the book. And I said, authors who haven't read the book? He said, yeah, he said, "Uh, I don't mind if they don't write the book. But if they're going to do an interview, I think as a matter of professional courtesy, they ought to read the book. (laughs) And then one of the basketball players, I think it was Charles Barkley, I'm not sure of that. Uh, admitted on the air that he hadn't read the book. Somebody asked asked him, you know, what's in chapter eight? Said, I don't know. And uh, you think I read that? Well, I've read your books and I know that you wrote them. So there's no. I, I definitely wrote them. There wasn't anybody volunteering to write them for me. Well, we don't have a lot of time, so we do want to talk about your other hat, the more um, meaningful, serious books. And I was mentioning on the way over here that. I mentioned your name to three different people from three across two generations, and they they all spoke first about two of your books, 
Remembering Denny. Now, that was when you were at Yale. Right. And you wrote about a guy that seemed to have all this promise. He was featured on Life magazine. Right. Tell us about Denny. Well, he was sort of the golden boy from California. He was a swimmer and, and probably in the top four or five people in the class and um, had a great California smile. And it's the person your parents always remembered. My father always used to say, where's that handsome boy now? He's got a great smile. Um, and he was a Rhodes Scholar. And life actually covered his graduation. I mean, not because he wasn't that famous, but they were looking for some sort of typical uh, American boy getting out of a sort of an Ivy League school. And um, um, but he ended uh, up when you wrote the book, he had killed himself. Yeah. Years later, and what happened to the promise? And I thought you, uh, one of the women that I spoke to, who. She she had gone to an Ivy school mm. around that time, and she said you just captured the what it was like in this country at that mm. time. For the expectations were that, as you said, you know, people would go on to be pre- somebody from Yale would probably be president, and right. so. and it was soon and and there there was a lot of privilege involved, which we didn't even. I'm sure we didn't even verbalize or even think about in the sense that, for instance. If you wanted to go to law school, we were essentially comp- competing with only half of the population, because women, uh, I, I think, in the the law school there weren't in women. the early '60s. The um, uh, there's a wonderful story uh, about women at Harvard Law School. There are 500 people in a class at Harvard Law School, in the class of something like like '64, uh, there were I think 18 women. And the dean used to go around, had a tea for the women, and he went around saying, why are you at Harvard Law School to each one of them with the assumption that a man who had to support a family could be there, et cetera, et cetera. Jeez. He came to one woman and he said, why, did, why are you at Harvard Law School? And she said, because Yale Law School turned me down. <laughs> <laughs> Good for her. Well, on the subject of women, right. uh, the other book that... Now, admittedly, this is not some kind of scientific survey, but everybody thinks of your writing about Alice. I mean, right. not just the book about Alice, but you always wrote about your wife throughout right. throughout her entire life. Uh, she was, um, and I think I wrote that book with the, it was actually, I hadn't thought of writing the book, and, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick, asked me if I ever thought about writing about Alice, and... Uh, when I finally did, I, uh, the idea was to some, correct whatever sort of sitcom role she had. The, she was presented as the, uh, which was based on, on truth, that she was the sensible uh, mother of the family uh, trying to uh, control this sort of goofy husband and, and the two children and all that. Um, and I wanted to write more about, about her, about uh, what she could do and in, in, in professionally and in, in, in other ways. Well, I always felt like I knew her. Your right. writing was so right. vivid and so loving. And, um, even when it was humor, it was, you know, so gentle and it right. was like she was straightening you out. <laughs> you that was usually true. Somebody 
introduced us at, when we were both speaking at a conference of English teachers and said they're like Burns and Allen, except she's George and he's Gracie. Yeah, <laughs> the opposite. Well, we we have only have a little time left to talk about your um, the book that I guess you came to town for, maybe. Uh, mm-hmm. um, as, as we speak, we're taping this for the... Uh, around the Tennessee Williams Fest. But the um, it's a collection of your columns, as we said, about race. Um, one that I, I we just have to mention because we're in New Orleans here. You wrote about the Zulus in 1964 and how different the Zulus were in 1964 from today. Right. For people not lucky enough to, to live here, the um, Mardi Gras crews are kind of our society, the way right. some places have country clubs. And the Zulus were the only African-American crew. But it was so different in 1964. Yeah, I, I, I first got acquainted with the Zulus in 1961 when there was some, uh, when the black community uh, was talking about boycotting the Zulu parade because they went in blackface and and uh, grass skirts. This was just after the rather noisy and raucous integration of the schools in in, uh, in New Orleans, and um, and then I came back and I and I did a piece about uh, the sort of arguments and, and counter arguments over the years about the Zulus, um, and and then it turned out that. One of the interesting things about it is the sort of respectable members of the community who couldn't seem to get them off the street sort of infiltrated. And and uh, so the Zulus still, I think maybe to this day, I wasn't at Mardi Gras this year, uh, parade in blackface. And, Not only uh, do they still, I, I was writing about it and I said in politically incorrect blackface, right. but there's several um, prominent Caucasian Americans who go who in blackface, go in blackface. Yeah. and that's really a sensitive. Yeah. Anywhere else, nobody could get and away no, with absolutely. that. No, absolutely, and I, and I, I thought it was an example of of what some of the people, um, uh, English professors who have a kind of school of thought about deconstruction, and everything, say that what 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 what's on the page is not as important as what you bring to the page. So so this place that was so this institution that was considered um, insulting and offensive and would have been off the street in 10 minutes in, in Atlanta or someplace, uh, now gets the mayor and and everybody says it's an interesting traditional old folk thing. And, and when uh, he meets Rex, it's not uh, what you wrote about. It was so different today. Uh, I mean, he's considered equal almost with right, Rex. Rex right. is the business guy. And then Zulu is, you know, our guy. Right, the, right. The and they used to be Comus meeting Rex. Yes. To, well, they, Re- they still meet at they, night, but... Yeah, and and Rex was supposed to call on Comus to show the primacy of of the social, which has been an unfortunate aspect of New Orleans for many years. Well, if you're outside of New Orleans, I know this doesn't sound very... Uh, matter of fact or sensible or anything but trust me folks i've been here 30 years now and mm. comus and rex and zulu these are very important uh, right. issues here another issue that you wrote about in this book and i'm being a little provincial here picking out the ones that that we can relate to but we actually had a law in new in louisiana it was regarding race and right. you explained 
which I didn't know anything about, the Spanish and the French that settled here, you said um, the French had eight different ways of classifying mm-hmm. race. The Spanish had, I think you said 64. Something like kind of gradations of they had words for all of those. Well, uh, by the 70s, we uh, we had one, there were two races, and right. if you were even 132nd African-American, yeah. you were considered African-American. And that law was passed, the 132nd law, I think, in, in the 60s. I mean, it was it was not, not a 19th century law. And and one of the things that I discovered doing the story, which really surprised me, people were saying it was sort of like the Nuremberg laws and all that, and I, and it was it was pushed by uh, a senator, a representative in the state legislature, and it turned out he he had a client who was about to uh, the son or the daughter was about to get a marriage license, and the woman at the uh, so he needed a birth certificate. And there was a notorious woman in, in New Orleans uh, at that office who took apparent delight in, in finding that people had partly uh, black ancestry. And uh, but the, the, I can't remember the statistics exactly, but he figured that his client was 164th. So he got... A law passed that, that you had to be one thirty if you were one thirty second. Uh, in other words, it was just a guy <laughs> trying I to do something. I never knew that, and you know I've talked about that law anyway. You trace a, 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 a then contemporary person and what went on with that. You also talk about, of course, over the years, much more significant um, mm-hmm. cases that went all around the country, and you make a point that it wasn't just the South. I mean, you write about Boston, Denver, um, right. you know, races and still today. Um, that's why the book is so uh, interesting to see how things have and haven't changed since you started writing about race. I wish we had more time. You're, um, you know, really so uh, well-known and so well-received, both for the humor and for the most serious things writing about your new book about Jackson 64. Uh, I'll say the Miami Herald, my hometown, said Trilling is perhaps the finest reporter in America. Mm-hmm. And, okay, the New York Times um, said that rarity, the book is a rarity, reportage as art. You've been listening to Writers Forum, and we want to thank our guest today, Calvin Trilling, author most recently of Jackson 64 and other dispatches from 50 years of reporting on race in America. I'm Sherry Alexander for WRBH.